Hey, Matt, let's talk cheese. Yes, Eliza, the holiday season is here, which means one thing. It's cheese board season. One of my favorite cheeses to put out is Parmigiano Reggiano, a cheese that is in a class of its own. Made from only three ingredients, Parmigiano Reggiano uses a century-old process and comes directly from Italy. And the bottom line is that Parmigiano Reggiano is more than a cheese. It's a cornerstone of the Italian culinary culture and a rich experience filled with culture, history, savoir-faire, and of course, flavor. I agree. I love putting out hunks of Parmigiano Reggiano to pair with holiday cocktails or drizzled with balsamic vinegar. Add a wedge of Parmigiano Reggiano to your holiday spread and elevate your hosting experience. Look for Parmigiano Reggiano in the premium cheese case of your favorite grocery store or deli. You can recognize it by the full name listed on the package and the unique rind dotted with the Parmigiano Reggiano name. Visit www.parmigianoreggiano.us slash holiday for more holiday inspiration. You can check out the link in our show notes as well. What if I wrote recipes from the book and I put them on my website? And so it was a a funny sort of reverse engineering of trying to figure out, okay, what does this dish actually look like and taste like in practice? And I wanted the recipe to work for a reader. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Sanai Lamwan is a novelist and cookbook writer whose work is united in its ability to make you very, very hungry. Before writing her novel, The Margot Affair, she worked as a cookbook editor at Martha Stewart and Faden. And now she combines her love of literature and food in her own writing and co-writing cookbooks, like Make It Japanese with Rie McClenny. It's a joy to have her on the show to talk about her process, her favorite spots for croissants in the city, and more. Sanai Lemoine, this is Taste. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me today. Thank you for being here. I'm curious about what your pastry consumption has been like today. <laughs> to start. Well, you know, because I brought you some, um, but I actually haven't had the pastry that I purchased about an hour ago yet. I'm saving it for later. Um, but I did stop by La Cabra, which is maybe my second favorite, right now my second favorite pastry spot in the city um, they have a really delicious ganli, which you just tasted, with like a really crisp shell and custardy interior. And then they have a pain suisse, which I love. Um, it's like a like a chocolate croissant, but theirs is really crisp. It kind of shatters when you bite into it, and there there's chocolate and a little bit of custard inside. Wow. Is that what you're saving for later? Yes, that's the one I got for myself. You, know, you have one as well. I have one for later also. I'll text you when I when I eat it and <laughs> compare notes. Um, but I think of you as like one of the most prodigious pastry eaters in my life in the city. So I'm, I'm curious if you're saying La Cabra is number two, what your number one slot is right now. Number one has been Nick and Sons for many years. And I just, I love their laminated pastries, especially their croissant, their pain au chocolat. They have a ham and cheese croissant on the weekend that's really extraordinary um, and I discovered them a couple of years ago. And unfortunately, they're only open, I think it's Thursday through Sunday. They have pretty limited hours and you have to get there early. But what I love about their pastries beyond 
the the buttery flavor and texture and how like light and airy and crisp they are is that they're incredibly fresh. And I think that can be hard, especially in New York. I find that sometimes even the best bakery will have these sort of like stale or on their way to being stale pastries. And with a croissant, there's such a short shelf life. So ideally you get them kind of right out of the oven when they're still almost warm. Or you can revive them. You know, you can reheat them at home if if they're feeling a little dry. That's a good tip. I feel embarrassed because I've never been to Nick and Sons. And whenever I try <gasps> to go, it's like 11. See, this is what I was worried about. It's like 11 a.m. on a Saturday. The line is down the block. And I just get antsy. Um, and I can kind of feel like, oh, is it really worth it? But if you're telling me that it's worth it, I think I need to just get myself out of bed earlier, it sounds like. Yeah, I hear you because I really don't like to stand in a line anymore. Um, and I would have brought you some today if they were open, but they're not open on Tuesdays. Um, no, the trick is to go early and, you know, ideally around eight or nine at the latest. Um, there will barely be a line, but they're also they're so friendly and lovely, which is nice, like despite the fact that they are incredibly popular and, and there's often a line down the block like they're they're so sweet. Um, which makes it all the better. Some things actually are worth waiting for. And I think that once you have the experience of waiting in line and having it be worth it, like Taqueria Ramirez, I'll wait in line all the time for those tacos. And they go quickly in the same way that getting a pre-made pastry would go quickly. So I think that I just need to like make it through. And then the next time I'm in line, I know what I'm waiting for. I have that kind of motivation. Yes. And once you've had one bite of that fresh croissant, you will come back many times, I promise. <laughs> so as listeners probably would pick up based on your flawless pronunciation of all of these pastries, you have a French background. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about um, just your childhood and like what kind of food you were eating growing up and how maybe that's shaped um, your diet and your cravings today. Yeah. So my father is French. Um, he's from Brittany, which is the land of salted butter and buckwheat crepes, um, oysters. And my mom is Japanese and I was born in France and we actually moved to Australia when I was four and then moved back to France when I was 12. Um, and both my parents are very, very passionate about food to the point where we were all so obsessed with food and cooking when I was growing up that I assumed that everyone else had that same obsession. And then I got to college and it was a bit of a shock to realize that um, it wasn't as common as I thought it might be. Um, and both my parents loved to cook. I spent a lot of time in the kitchen growing up, but my mom was definitely the primary cook. Um, and as I mentioned, she's Japanese, but she spent much of her adult life in Argentina. So her style of cuisine is a mix of Japanese cooking with some Western and Argentine influences. She makes a really delicious milanesa with mashed potatoes. But the base is always Japanese in terms of there being rice, miso soup, um, the kinds of like small plates and vegetables that she prepares. We went through a very strict phase in my life when mostly when we lived in Australia where my mom was cycling through various diets. They weren't for losing weight or or like calories or restrict restricting. Well, there was a form of restriction, but not in terms of, of like uh, how much we were eating, but more what we were eating. My mom became really interested in macrobiotic food and 
uh, eating according to our blood types, and we all had different blood types in the family, so that was complicated. What's your blood type? Um, I'm O positive. So what does eating for an O positive blood type look like? Apparently it's meat, like not being a vegetarian, which we were vegetarians for a while, so then we had to shift. Um, but it was it was very, like when I say it was strict, it was to the point where I truly thought that if I ate sugar, my hair would fall out, like something terrible would happen to my body. Um, I was eating maybe brown rice three times a day. We had a lot of savory breakfasts because of my mom's Japanese background. Um, it was a lot of beans and vegetables. And thankfully, she's one of the best cooks that I know. So even when she was making something that you might think is super healthy, it was still like very well seasoned. And she would cook with a lot of um, herbs and spices and olive oil and kombu to flavor things. Um, But it was definitely an unusual diet. And so, but then I would go visit my grandparents in France and they would feed me everything. It would be, you know, hot chocolate for breakfast, like dipping super buttered toast into hot chocolate, um, pork rillette, uh, cream everywhere. Um, And so I was sort of oscillating between this very, very healthy parsley forward diet and um, this very sort of luxurious decadent French diet with a lot of butter. Um, And it was hard for my body. I would always have like a moment of adjustment when I would go visit my grandparents. And I think that upbringing really reflects in the way that I eat and cook today. Like I, I do love vegetables and even one meal like lunch or dinner without a green vegetable is hard for me. I'm always thinking about incorporating vegetables. Sometimes I'll throw a handful of parsley into fried rice if I don't have a vegetable. Um, like I, I really do think about the balance of ingredients. And most of my cooking is at home is more vegetarian leaning, I would say. But I do have these sweet cravings and... Um, For instance, most days after lunch, I have something that I affectionately call lunch dessert. Oh, I love lunch dessert. (laughs) Lunch dessert is the best. So it could be... It could be half an apple. It could be... A Wait, few... that's not lunch dessert. I, I... That's just a snack. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. It's more like... So if I'm doing apple, it's more like apple dipped in tahini with a little bit of honey and salt. You okay. Know? Like I'll dress it up. You have to um, finish it. Yes, exactly. Um, though if I'm in a rush, it might just be an apple, but I will always slice it so it feels a little more special. Like I very rarely just um, bite into an apple. There's something about cutting it that... That feels like I'm, I don't know, preparing a little treat for myself. As somebody that has always loved to eat and probably like cooked for a long time, did you always want to be writing about food in this kind of way? Like how did food become a character in your work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Because for a long time, my writing and my food work felt very separate, as in my novel writing and this career that I was growing in food were sort of... um, existed on different planes almost. Um, I went to school for writing. I got an MFA in fiction writing. But when I was looking for a full-time job, I immediately thought of working in food because of my passion for cooking and recipes. I didn't want to go to school again. I already had a master's and an undergraduate degree. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to go to culinary school. What can I do? How can I learn the skills Um, while working? And I was very lucky to find this job working in a test kitchen of a food startup called Martha and Marley Spoon, which happened to have um, 
two women who worked in the test kitchen who had magazine backgrounds. They came from Bon Appetit and Martha Stewart. So they So it's Don Perry, right? Yeah, Don Perry and Jennifer Aronson. And they trained me in recipe development and writing and editing as though we were at a magazine. So it was sort of the best training that I could have hoped for, but in a very intimate environment. It was just the three of us at first. I was washing dishes. I was running to get ingredients. I was helping with photo shoots. Um, And then slowly I worked my way into recipe development and editing. I learned to write a recipe. Um, And then I sort of just kind of naturally transitioned to cookbook writing. I wanted a job that would be more focused on the writing side and less on the cooking side um, of my food work. And and so I ended up working as a cookbook editor at both Mar- Martha Stewart and Fidon. And I there I learned a whole different side of food. But coming back to your to your question about the like how how food and and my writing have um, interacted or nourished each other, I I did think of them as separate things because all this time I was writing a novel. And I wasn't really talking about it. Even when I went on submission with my novel to editors, um, at the time I was a cookbook editor at Fidon. And I remember I I wanted to keep it really separate. I didn't tell anyone about it. Um, And it wasn't until much later when my novel was published and people came to me and commented on the food descriptions and how much I seemed to love food that I realized, oh, all this time, of course, my love of food has been making its way into my fiction, and they they have been feeding each other. Um, like they're they're not these complete separate spheres as I thought they were. Right, and I think that it's easy to think like contemporaneously that there's been a lot of growth in recent years in terms of literary cookbooks or food in culture, in terms of even like TV shows and movies like The Bear. But there has been a history of of like literary characters loving food um, and and also like movies, just kind of fictional things that have food as a character that I think is so entrancing. Um, And I wonder if like you maybe had any references or things that you look to in terms of like food literature or things in that creative space. I'm mostly drawn actually to movies that depict food. I think there's something about the visual medium and how sensual it can be that inspires my writing um, and feels separate on, separate enough from the writing as opposed to maybe reading a lot of food writing. Like I, I'm almost embarrassed that I'm not a super avid reader of food books aside from cookbooks, which I I will uh, I can read for hours. Um, but you know, aside from a couple of writers, like I I love Tamar Adler's writing, for instance. But aside from a small handful. I really do turn more to kind of to to movies and their disp- their depictions of cooking. Uh, one movie that I watched countless of times as a child is Tampopo, the Japanese. I knew you were going to say oh, this. I, I was it. waiting for you to say this because I think Tampopo is such a beautiful. Well, I'll let you tell me what you like about it, but yeah. I think it's great. I'm so glad you've seen it. It's um I think it was a movie that my mom must have loved because it was playing all the time and I was very young. So, you know, it's also a very sexy movie. It's funny. The, the fish scenes. Yes. 
Oh, no, it's it's really extraordinary. Um, And I was able to see it at the movies a couple of years ago, which was so exciting because before that, you know, had just been on a TV or on a small screen. Um, But I think what I love so much about it is that it really shows you the process of cooking as well. It's not just someone taking a bite. Um, but it's how the food is made in a kitchen. It's the way that people move when they're cooking. Like that's something that I love to describe in writing. I think um, a scene where someone is cooking or eating can be so incredibly rich in terms of descriptions and what's happening beneath the surface and how characters are interacting. It reveals the dynamic. It reveals um, so much about touch. And And then recently I saw this movie that, in some ways, is so different from Tampopo, but I kept thinking about Tampopo as I watched it. Um, it's a French movie by a French-Vietnamese director called The Taste of Things, and it was just showing at the New York Film Festival. Um, and it has these in- extraordinary cooking sequences. They are so long and so sumptuous. And you just you feel like you're in the kitchen with the characters, and you can smell and hear the sizzle and it's it's like your i mean your whole body is is involved in a way and i think about that when i'm writing like can i give the reader an experience you know whether it's honestly a food scene or a sex scene or anything that's that's like having to do with the body can i give them an experience that really um involves all of their senses and that makes them feel entirely immersed in the story Okay, I have to add that movie to my list then, especially if it reminds you of Tom Popo. And I'm curious, you know, writing The Margot Affair, there are all these scenes and recipes like for paraclafuti or tomato tart that I noticed you actually have shared recipes for some of these dishes. Did you have the recipe in mind when you were writing about the dish or did the recipe come later? How did that work? Yeah, so as I was saying earlier, I was I was very stubborn um, in terms of wanting to keep the fiction writing and the food writing separate. So as I was writing my novel, I was like, yeah, there are these food descriptions, but it's really not about that. It's about, you know, the characters and their desires and the mother-daughter relationship. And and it is about all of that. Um, but there is a lot of food. Um, and the, the recipes came much later. So I had finished writing the book. We were getting ready to publish it. And then the pandemic started. Um, and the book was scheduled to be published in June 2020. And so there was a period of a couple of months where I knew that publicity was going to be really tough, that it was hard. It would be hard to reach readers because the the more traditional channels um, for publicizing a book weren't available. The bookstores were closed. And I was ruminating and I thought, well, what if I kind of as a fun exercise, what if I wrote recipes from the book and I put them on my website? And I didn't think that anyone would actually cook them. But because I had some extra time to spare, I really developed them. So I went back and I marked all the sections in the book that had food, um, kind of whether it was a dinner party scene or a really simple recipe, not even recipe, just description of food. And then I selected my favorites and I developed recipes based on the descriptions And so it was a a funny sort of reverse engineering of trying to figure out, okay, what what does this dish actually look like and taste like in practice? And I wanted the recipe to work for a reader. Like I I was very rigorous in, in terms of testing and writing it. And then to my great delight, people started cooking them. 
and, you know, people would go to my website and there's a tab that says what Margot ate. And, um, I guess we had we had a lot more time on our hands back then in our kitchens. Yeah, and I think um was it Deb Perlman and Smitten Kitchen shared some of the recipes also, which I imagine like I think for any recipe developer, like when the Smitten Kitchen fandom can cook something or latch onto it, that's exciting. Oh yeah, that was a dream come true. Um I emailed Deb Perlman out of the blue. I didn't know her. Um, but I, I love her work and have admired her for so many years. And I emailed her saying, I'm, I'm sure you have your schedule fully booked for many, many months to come, but um, would you be interested in maybe featuring a recipe from the book? I have these recipes that I've developed. And she had, she had read the book and she had posted about it, so I knew that she was familiar with it. Um, but it was really a shot in the dark, and it was such a surprise and such a gift when she responded and said, yes, let's let's do the tomato tart. And so then I went back and retested the tomato tart many times. <laughs> in a panic. I know, in a panic and, you know, and made sure that it was really as perfect as can be. Um, and a lot of readers have come to me through the tomato tart recipe. I love the idea of people like accessing a novel through the recipes that were created after the fact. It's such a like strange little backdoor into that world. But I think it, it makes so much sense that um, if, especially if you have such a personal connection with a recipe, like you make it, it works, you eat from it, that you kind of already have vested interest in reading the book. And to me also, it's interesting with your work because a novel is such a solitary thing. And then you've been doing cookbook co-writing, which is kind of the opposite part of that project. You have this book with Ria McClenney, Make It Japanese, that um, is, will probably be out by the time this interview is out. What was it like kind of transitioning into that collaborative co-writing space? It was the best, honestly. Like, really, I I was so, so lucky to be able to write this book with Rie McClenney. Um, she was a dream to work with. I think, uh, you know, um, such an important part of a collaboration is getting along as as two individuals. And I was very, very fortunate that we... Um, get along as friends. We became friends through the process of writing the book. Um, I, When I was a cookbook editor, my favorite part of the editorial process was talking to the author and bouncing around ideas and talking about food. I mean, I can talk about food on end. It's it like it never tires me. And so to be able to do that in an even more intimate way with Rie and to talk about her recipes and her food memories to kind of pull out more content, to flesh out stories that she already had, um, was was just like the the best kind of job that you could expect. And writing a book, of course, is so so hard. <laughs> it is um, it is by no means an easy thing, and it's a very creative endeavor as well. But um, there was something so special about being able to do it together, and to be there really. Um, to to give voice to her story, um, I loved the sort of like ghostwriting aspect of it or where, where I was listening to her and interviewing her and then using her words in order to to craft a narrative. Um, you know, it, it, it's so different from writing your own book. And I really liked I really liked that experience of embodying her her voice and her story. Yeah, I think that sounds really exciting and also maybe like a little bit of a relief to get to step out of like your own head and your creative process and peek into someone else's. And I'm curious because, you know, 
as we've talked about, you did grow up eating like Japanese food at home. Were there any moments when there was a recipe that like maybe you would approach in one way and she was approaching completely differently or that you had different associations to? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I learned so much from her. That's one of the other pleasures of collaborating because you're so deep in the recipes and uh, you can you know, you have these long conversations where you're just asking questions about the most minute thing that I think would only interest us when it comes to food. Like, how exactly do you wash rice? Um, But you really do learn so much from the way that another person approaches ingredients and cooking. And with Rie, the, the sort of beautiful thing is that the recipes would both feel familiar and new, like they're, she has a lot of cold noodle dishes, which I also grew up eating. It's very typical to eat them in Japan in the summer um, when it gets really hot and humid and you need something to cool you down. And there's one recipe in particular, hiyashi chuka, that my mom would make. And Rie has a recipe for it in the book. But hers is different. And so it's both familiar. Like when I first made her recipe, I thought, oh, I recognize these flavors. And yet this is very much Rie. Like she's added her own ingredients and her own twist. And I felt that way with all of her recipes where there was an element of comfort and familiarity, but also she was stretching my thinking or she was approaching something in a way that, of course, my mother didn't. Um, So that was such a pleasure to rediscover these recipes through her. Yeah, I love that. I'm curious, like, what the difference is between, like, Rie's Hayashi Chuka and your mom's? I mean, in general, I would say my mom because of her sugar aversion. <laughs> her her Japanese cooking is a little different from most Japanese home cooking because sugar is an important ingredient in Japanese home cooking. And Rie actually does an extraordinary job of having it feel really balanced. Like, none of her recipes are too sweet. In fact, she would often bring down the sugar from what it would be in in like a maybe more traditional home cooking recipe. But my mother, really, there was no sugar. So that was something that that I noticed immediately, like the, the balance of flavors was different. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like there are so many parts of the cookbook making process that are so foreign to somebody that has never worked behind it, especially in the kind of way that you have both as an editor and now as a writer. Are there any parts that you think are maybe like underratedly important or like not part of the conversation in terms of when people are buying a book that you find to be interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are two parts that come to mind. One is the actual bookmaking process, the production side, which is really just so involved. I mean, everything from like choosing the paper to the end papers to designing the cover, um, the printing, the images. Cookbooks are such beautiful objects, and it's something that um, really surprised me and and just sort of blew my mind when I was working as a cookbook editor, especially at a place like Fidon where the books are so gorgeous and there's such attention to the quality of the paper, to how they're being printed. And so I really learned an appreciation for the bookmaking process. And I'm a perfectionist, so I will notice even if a comma is out of place. Um, So I feel like the sort of like thinking about the book as an object and not just um, the content and the story and the recipes. Like that was something new to me and that I think people maybe don't always necessarily see or 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 like realize how much work goes into it and then the other side that is that is always I think interesting to to people who don't work in the industry and or or like these are questions that I often get is about the cookbook shoot 
um, because it's such an important part of the of the process of writing a book. And you have to hire a whole team. You have a photographer who usually will choose a food stylist, well, with with the author. But there's a food stylist, a prop stylist. Um, And there's such important jobs that sometimes don't get as much maybe recognition as I think they should. Like the food stylist is responsible for finding the ingredients, cooking the food, making sure it looks beautiful and that it's beautifully photographed or that it looks beautiful for a photograph, which is a very specific skill. Um, And then the prop stylist is also kind of a magician. They are usually working with a really tight budget, which is hard because props are so expensive. And they have to think of creative ways to repurpose props and surfaces, um, fabrics. And they also have to think about the cohesion of the book. Like they're the ones who are really setting the tone and the feel and sort of like the – it's almost like the narrative feel of the book. Like you don't want to be flipping through and seeing the same plate used in the same way over and over again. But I think that's something that's quite imperceptible to someone who's just flipping through a book. And yet they are such important – parts of creating a cookbook. Right. I think it's almost like when the job is being done well, you don't think about it at all because everything looks delicious and like something you want to have on your own table. Whereas if you're looking at images and something is burnt or like the plating is really messy and it's hard to tell what you're looking at, you're not going to want to cook from that. It's kind of like the best job is imperceptible to people that don't know about it. Of course. No, even the simplest thing, like making sure that you have the right utensils for the dish, that the chopsticks are placed correctly. I mean, there there are so many little small decisions that actually I think are incredibly important in terms of creating the the visual for the recipe. Right. And I really appreciate what you mentioned about the chopsticks, for example, because I think there are so many like cultural signifiers that can be present in a photo shoot that if they're wrong, um, that's like a huge red flag for somebody that's of that culture that's trying to like get that book and cook from it. So I think that's a great example. And then your other book that you're working on is called Hot Sheet, and it's all about sheet pans. And I'm curious about the most ingenious sheet pan use you've come up with since starting this project. There's so many. I mean, I would say that the most uh, surprising one is not even for a recipe. It's I was caught in a in a rainstorm one summer in Brooklyn and I had I was leaving a potluck and I had brought um a tart on a sheet pan, on a half sheet pan, and I didn't have an umbrella. And I was like, well, I have an empty sheet pan. I'm going to use a sheet pan as an umbrella as I <laughs> as I run um, to catch a cab. But no, there have been so many really interesting ways to, to cook on a sheet pan that my co-writer Olga Masov and I have um, discovered along the way. I think my... My favorite ones have to do with um, crispy bits. So I love texture. I love anything that's that's just on the edge of being burnt. Not burnt, but, you know, when it gets, like, really crunchy and crispy. And the sheet pan is the perfect vehicle for that because the edges get so hot. Yeah. And food can get really crispy. And two of my favorite dishes in the, in the book um, – so have that crispy factor. One is a crispy noodle dish. It's made with ramen. Mm. So you roast the vegetables. Um, you roast cabbage with bacon on a sheet pan. And then you add the cooked ramen noodles and a sauce. And the noodles get really crispy in the oven. Wow. And it's it's so, so good. I'm always scraping up little like crispy tendrils 
um, of ramen noodles at the end. And then the other one is a crispy rice. Um, so it's a paella that's cooked entirely in the sheet pan. And the edges get really crispy as well. The rice is cooked in the broth on the sheet pan. You put an inverted sheet pan on top. Um, and it's another one where I'm I'm usually standing by the by my stove um, and just scraping with a spoon, like the edges of the sheet pan. Um, and one recipe that came at the more at the end of the of writing the book was a suggestion from Rie actually to do a millefeuille mm. on a sheet pan. Um, you can bake the millefeuille layers of puff pastry between two sheet pans, and it's my father's favorite dessert. So I was like, okay, I, I, I'm up for the challenge. I have to do this. And it's it's such an impressive dessert, but also so, so simple um, and so delicious. So I think that one will be also like a surprising and fun one to make. Yeah, those all sound so great to me. It reminds me, first of all, your umbrella hack reminds me that I have sledded on my sheet pans numerous times, which I would actually not recommend because it warps the sheet pan to be going like down a down the Fort Greene Park side, <laughs> you know. But if you are in a pinch and you need a sled, like they do work quite well for that. Um, I feel like I was late in life to learn that you should be like preheating your sheet pans if you want things to be really crispy. I think Sophia Rowe told me that just to like put my sheet pan in the oven when the oven was preheating, if I was going to like hard roast some sweet potatoes or something so that as soon as they made contact, it would sizzle and get crispy. And it was the kind of thing that I just kind of, I was like, what have I been doing if I haven't been doing this? Yeah, no, that's, that's such a great tip. Preheating the sheet pan, um, also seasoning the sheet pan. Wow. Um, okay. Tell me yes. about that. Yeah. So, you know, if you've preheated the sheet pan or haven't, um, because it's such a big surface, um, it can sometimes be nice to, or like I find it useful, um, especially if I'm roasting a lot of vegetables, to oil a sheet pan, season it with salt and pepper, put the vegetables on top, then oil and season again. So you don't have to be sort of moving everything around. Um, yeah, I, I also love to use sheet pans just for organizing things in the kitchen. Like I love a quarter sheet pan, one eighth of a sheet pan is is a is a super cute but useful size as well for corralling ingredients. Like you'll put it out on your countertop and then put your kind of mise en place on top exactly. of Exactly. Yes. I think that's a good technique. I think when I was working at Bon Appetit and I would just be kind of skulking around the test kitchen, I didn't really realize the extent that like quarter sheet pans were just preferred sometimes over a half sheet pan just because you could have a couple different ones in the oven at once you could pull one out and then I moved to an apartment in New York that could only fit quarter sheet pans in the oven and now they're the only sheet pans that I own but just out of necessity yes I love the quarter sheet pan and right now I have an oven that is a smidge too small for a half sheet pan which is really tragic thankfully I'm done recipe testing um, but I've really really come to rely on the quarter sheet pan and I, I was using it already beforehand for a lot of desserts. I have this blackberry clafoutis recipe in the cookbook that's made in a quarter sheet pan. And a half sheet pan is very big. So it can it's wonderful if you're feeding a crowd or if you're making something where you really want enough space for the ingredients to not steam. But sometimes it's just too much food. And so I love the quarter sheet pan um, because it's also like so easy to carry. It's so light. It's very affordable. Um I love the Nordic Wear ones. Those yeah. are my favorites. The Nordic Wear ones are what I had to replace when I went sledding on them, which is <laughs> embarrassing because they are a quality sheet pan. So I should have known better. But, you know, sometimes like that's where the priorities lie. 
So I don't know if this is a, a ginger question to ask, but I'm curious about the, your next novel and if you can tell me a little bit about the idea behind it, because I haven't heard anything. Oh, yes. I haven't spoken about it much. I'm very superstitious, so I don't often talk about what I'm working on, but I have been working on it for a few years. It's a novel that is set mostly in Argentina uh, in the mid-1980s, so after the military dictatorship and the return to democracy. And it's about a, a young woman in her early 30s who is Japanese and who moves from Tokyo to Buenos Aires because she befriends an Argentine woman and they grow very close. And it's about their friendship in the aftermath of the military dictatorship. And so it, it kind of it goes back and forth between these two cultures and these two places. It's very much about belonging and creating a home away from your home, finding community in, a, in an adopted home. There is food. <laughs> there Red is, meat, probably. <laughs> there, is, there, is a lot of, there is a lot of steak. There is, um, yeah, there's a lot of meat. Um, there is steak so tender that you can cut into it with a spoon. I love that imagery. And you're you're planning a trip to Argentina, right? I am. Yeah, my godmother lives there. My so my mother lived in Argentina for 20 years. And I I have a lot of what feels like family there. Um they're not blood related, but they're basically my family, so I'm going to visit my godmother there soon. So what do you normally eat when you're with your godmother? Well, when I'm in Argentina, it's true we do eat a lot of meat. Um and thankfully I eat meat. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure what she's eating these days. She's, last time I was there, she was following kind of a more strict diet um, because of her health. But I am sure that I will eat many milanesas, which which I, I really, really love. I mean, it's, I think that's like one of my childhood comfort foods. Um, I know it's one of my brother's favorite foods as well. I think a cutlet has pretty like universal nostalgic childhood appeal for yes. people. Most cultures have some kind of cutlet, that's I think. That's so true. No, I think that's that's really true. There's something about kind of that crispy exterior and the meat. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it does have those childhood associations. And then I love a really simple um, pressed sandwich. They make these sandwiches that, that are called tostadas with um, cheese and ham. And it's it's really very simple, but very delicious. And I'm sure there will be lots of dulce de leche as well. Mm. I love all of those things. And we've talked about pastries in New York, but I'm curious about where you're eating these days, if you have any favorite spots that you would want to shout out. Yeah. So, I mean, it keeps changing. But right now, my my top kind of my favorite spot is this tiny restaurant in Fort Greene called Friday. And I almost don't want to talk about it because I'm I'm afraid that that too many people will find out about it because it's such a small space. But the food is spectacular. The chef there is incredibly talented. Every dish that I've had there has been delicious. You had your birthday there, right? I did. I, I, just I heard about this. I just celebrated my birthday there. The desserts are great. Um, the wine is excellent. The service is warm and professional and unpretentious. It's really everything that you'd want from a restaurant. Um, I just keep going back. 
Well, I love getting this rec from you and I'll get a few more because this is taste and we're talking about your discerning taste. So I have a kind of like a little taste check for you and I'll give you some categories and then rapid fire. You can just tell me what comes to mind if that sounds good. Ready? Yes. Okay. Let's take a breath. Okay. Um, favorite cookbook? Made in India by Mirasoda. Favorite bookstore? This is an awful question. <laughs> you can give me a couple. <laughs> I have to give you a couple because it's it's like choosing among your children. Um, I'd say Greenlight Bookstore because it's a 30-minute walk from where I live. But for events, Powerhouse Arena, I love because they allow food and drinks. What do you bring in? I usually bring in brownies, homemade brownies. I, I make these sea salt brownies that I think are, are oh. really great. Okay. Favorite New York City restaurant? I'm going to have to say for a day. Favorite Paris restaurant? This one is really hard as well um, because I've been toggling back and forth between two. There's one that that I hesitate to say because everyone brings it up, but it really is a great restaurant. I love Mocha Nuts, and it's one of my mother's favorite restaurants. Um, they're only open for breakfast and lunch. And what what I particularly love about them is that the – the savory food is as good as the sweet food. There's such an attention to the desserts as well. They're not too sweet. They're really just, they're so fresh. The ingredients that they use are are like right from the farmer's market or that's how it tastes to me. Um, but last time I was in Paris, I came across a new restaurant. I've only been there once, so I feel like I can't, you know, quite say that it's my top restaurant, but it's called Amarante. It's in the 12th arrondissement. And... It's it's really just so, so special. It has 10 tables. Um, they do one seating a night. There's one chef in the kitchen. And I had the best steak that I've ever had there with the best mashed potatoes, like kind of mashed potatoes where you can taste the sweetness of the potatoes. There's still pieces of potatoes. You can taste the butter and the mm. salt, but it's not too rich or heavy. It's like just right. And then I also had this incredible chocolate cake. It's an individual size chocolate cake that is baked when you order it. And it's just set. It's almost like a chocolate mousse inside. It's barely sweet. It's not bitter. It's both rich and light at once. Wow. Okay. That was a very long rapid Sorry. fire answer, but I want to so eat good. it. I want it. I want to eat it. So I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Um, favorite New York City bakery? Nick and Sons. Favorite Paris bakery? It's a Japanese-French bakery. Um, I guess it's it's not a bakery. It's a patisserie. Um, patisserie. It's uh, called Mori Yoshida, and he's a French-Japanese uh, patissier, and it's just exquisite. He has this... Sorry, I know I'm, I'm going on and on. But <laughs> if you go, when you go, you have to get the fraisier, which is a a cake with cream and strawberries, and it's just so good. Mm. Okay, a restaurant that you wish could be your neighborhood restaurant. There's this restaurant in the 11th in Paris called Recoin. It's on this tiny little street. They're open all day. They have a prefix lunch menu for 24 euros. Um, they have a really simple breakfast that's just like toast with jam and butter or a soft-boiled egg. You can sit there and read. It's perfect for a date as well. I wish I lived walking distance from it. Beautiful. And lastly, a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat. 
the opening sequence of The Taste of Things, which you have to see, um, the movie that I referred to earlier, has um, the most like mouth-watering preparation of a meal. And as it was being plated and served, um, all I could think about was I need to eat this meal. And there's one dish in particular, a volovant, which is this this really kind of uh, fancy puff pastry creation um, that's filled with, I think in the movie it's with with shrimp and vegetables and cream. Mm. And it, it's like you can see the steam rising from the puff pastry as they cut into it. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to go watch this movie <laughs> and I'm going to go eat all these pastries right now. Thank you so much, Sanaya. This was so fun. Thank you. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.